0: Let's get in the Word of God for today. Let's take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at the sixth chapter today. It was obvious, you know, I put on uh, Facebook, I said, Isaiah 6, read it, outline it, you know, come ready for it. Man, when Abby started talking this morning, I thought, man, she'd give my Bible study away. She did a great job with reading over it and uh, coming to... Uh, the essential aspects of the chapter. And so the message is entitled cleansed, called, and commissioned. And so let's take our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Father God, we just thank you again just for Meeting with us and ministering to us, God, and we pray, Lord, that you would just take this time and just speak from your word, Uh, Lord, that we would see you for who you are, Uh, God, that you would change us and make us more like you are, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Guys, if you're outlining it, it's clarity, conviction, confession, cleansing, calling, commission, and completion. All of this comes to fruition for Isaiah here in the sixth chapter. So let's take our attention directly into the first verse where we read, in the year that King Uzziah, or some might say Uzziah, it don't matter to me how you say it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above it stood seraphim each one had six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew now guys this is Isaiah's clarity he saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple but guys we know when this happened for him so this was what happened, but when did it happen? It happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah, this was a king who ruled over Judah, and he had a very long and distinguished reign. He ascended to the throne. Can you imagine this? When he was only 16 years old, and he reigned for 52 years, from 792 B.C. to 740 B.C., and if you're interested, if you're one of those Bible students who wants to look a little further into such things you'll find the details of his reign in 2nd Chronicles chapter 26 and overall he was a very good king he was a he was a blessed man of God and in in many ways the Bible tells us that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and that he sought the he sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God and as long guys this is key and as long as he sought the Lord God God made him prosper. Under his reign, Judah prospered militarily. They prospered agriculturally, economically, uh, and even technologically. The Bible says that of Uzziah that his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. Uzziah was a great king. He was a great leader. He was a God-fearing man. But his reign was tarnished by one thing. When he became strong, when his fame spread far and wide, the Bible tells us that his heart was lifted up to his destruction. No longer content in his wonderful calling as king of Judah, he transgressed against the Lord in deciding that he wanted to enter the temple of the Lord and he wanted to burn incense on the altar of incense. But, ladies and gentlemen, the word of God was very clear priests weren't kings, and kings weren't priests. And so Azariah, the priest, along with 80 others, he brought a small like multitude of priests with him, and they, they uh, went in after him. Here goes Uzziah into the temple, and Azariah and these 80 priests are following, like, and they're trying to stop him, like, you can't do this. But Uzziah wasn't having it. After all, he was the king, right? And who's a priest to tell a king what he could or couldn't do? And so Uzziah, we read, became furious, And with that censer to burn incense still in his hand, the Bible tells us that leprosy broke out on his forehead. And so the priests laid hold of him and they thrust him out of the temple. And when the leprosy broke out on him, uh, he hurried to get out of the temple because he knew he had been struck by the Lord. And from that point forward, he lived in seclusion as a leper until the day that he died. But when Isaiah says, in the the year that King Uzziah died, he's really telling us that this is a pivotal point in the history of the nation. A wonderful ruler, guys, by all accounts, a wonderful ruler who had a tragic end died. This man who had elevated Judah to another level for 50 years, Two years. They had prospered as a nation in virtually every way. Guys, think about even in our nation how attached, think about how attached people can become to a president. I mean, in like four years or maybe eight years if they, if they get kind of the double shot. Now, Imagine whomever you consider to be one of the best presidents to have ever lived Whoever that may be a man who changed this nation for the better in every way again economically militarily, you know Technologically every now imagine him not being in office for four years or eight years, but 52 years I mean we're talking essentially an entire generation And now he's gone so for Isaiah, this isn't only discouraging, guys, it's devastating. I mean, what's going to happen? It's interesting, isn't it? How we can come to put our confidence in man. Uh, Remember the exhortation of chapter 2. Where God says, sever yourselves from such a man, or more literally, cease yourselves from the man whose breath is in his nostrils. For of what account is he? In other words, when you're putting your hope or your trust in this individual who's so frail, so vulnerable, so unable ultimately to do anything for you eternally, you're pretty much, listen, you're pretty much guaranteed your next exhale, um, it's the inhale that you're not assured of, right? We place so much confidence in a man who's not even assured of his next breath. Right now, for Isaiah, the outlook is pretty bleak. And so God gives him the uplook. Uzziah was no longer on the throne, but listen, no reason to fear, no reason to panic, no reason to be down or disillusioned or devastated or depressed. Because God is still very much on the throne. Now, a good king may have left his throne on earth, but the king of kings, you're starting to see this come into focus for you, the king of kings was still seated on his throne in heaven. God is still in control. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one true king sitting on a throne. And it wasn't Uzziah. It's the Lord. In fact, Again, for you Bible students who want to follow up, look it up, write it down. John chapter 12 and verse 41. John tells us that this was actually none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ that Isaiah laid eyes on. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. He was exalted. That means he was seated in a superior position both to heaven and earth. And the train of his robe filled the temple. family let's not miss this. There is a throne in heaven guys it's uh It's not a chair uh it's not a bar stool. You know, it's not something that anyone could sit on. It's something that only a sovereign king alone sits on. Only those with proper authority and sovereignty occupy thrones, and the Lord God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, sits upon it. And the Bible is careful to emphasize the fact that God is the one seated upon the throne, high and lifted up in heaven. You know, practically everyone in the Bible who had a vision of heaven or wrote about heaven mentions God's throne. It's a very central aspect of the heavenly scene. And you might want to just do a little Bible research, a little Bible study about the throne of God and see what's mentioned and what's said about it. Because, listen, one day you're going to be standing before it. You don't want to show up all like, wow, what is this? You want to have done your homework and you'll be ready for what you see. Guys, the prophet Micaiah, 1 Kings 22, speaks of it. Job seen or saw. I don't know if it's seen or saw, but he, he laid eyes on it. He saw it. David saw it, saw it. Okay, thank you. David saw it. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel saw the throne of God. The apostle John saw it, made mention of it in the book of Revelation over 35 times. Think about that. God is sovereign, He is exalted, and He is over the affairs of creation. And we read that the train of His robe filled the temple. Think about that. Not His robe, it wasn't His robe filling the temple, just the train of it. You know, that part that follows along. Behind a king or a bride, there she is on her wedding day, and the train is flowing along behind her, and it always has others tending to it, others taking care of it. Guys, the train magnifies priority, majesty, and dignity. You don't mow the lawn with a train dragging behind you, right? The train signifies you don't serve others. Others serve you. You're served by others. And guys, if you're anything like me, you really wish that Isaiah would have taken the time to detail everything that he saw. We wish that he would have given us so much more that he would have elaborated in a much greater way. But in my mind, he was no doubt witnessing, much like the Apostle Paul, something too wonderful for human words. You know, when Paul saw heaven, at least I believe it was Paul, you know, he speaks of a man, he speaks in the third person and he says, you know, I don't know if he was alive or dead in the body, out of the body, but man, saw heaven and he starts talking about it. And he said, man, the things that, that this man heard were things inexpressible. Not even lawful. In other words, it'd be illegal for me to try and repeat the things that I heard, the things that I saw. There's just no words appropriate to the human language to define and describe and dignify the glory, the beauty, the majesty of it all. The wonder that awaits you. But he tells us in this scene that above the throne, around the throne stood seraphim. Uh, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. These angelic creatures of God. Now some believe that the seraphim and the cherubim are the same class of angel. Uh, Others see two different angelic classes. And there are reasons that people kind of have this blurring of the line with that. I'm not going to get into that. I don't know that it really matters for our purposes, uh, if they're the same or different or whatever The word seraphim means burning ones Okay, Now seraph uh, would be the singular seraphim If you see an im on the end of a word Translated out of the Hebrew That speaks of plurality Okay, So a cherub would be a singular Cherubim speaks of multiple Are you following me? Okay, so you have Elo- and Elohim, mm, the singular of plurality, right? You got the I am in there, the triunity of God. You're starting to see these things come into focus. But evidently, these seraphim are burning brightly. They're, f- they're on fire before God, which is appropriate, isn't it? I and mean, we should be on fire before God. When we serve the Lord, when we worship God, there should be a fire, a radiance. But the psalmist, speaking of God, said, who makes his angels, spirits, his ministers, a flame, a fire. This is what Isaiah is seeing. Here we have these burning ones, and each one with six wings. And with two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they fly. Now, why would they cover their face and their feet? I'm going to be honest with you. The truth is the Bible doesn't say the common thought would be that they're covering their face, they're shielding themselves from the glory of God much like Moses did and they're covering their feet in modesty and humility and that they fly being willing in any capacity to serve the Lord immediately. So, Uh, With four wings, they posture themselves with humility, and with two, they're ready to serve the Lord in any capacity. Immediately, they're ready to be dispatched. The picture then would be one of humility, worship, and service to the one who sits upon the throne, okay? Charles Spurgeon said, Thus, they have four wings for adoration, two for active energy, four to conceal themselves, and two with which to occupy themselves in service. And we may learn from them that we shall serve God best when we are most deeply reverent and humbled in his presence. Veneration, which is just another word for adoration, must be in larger proportion than vigor, and adoration must exceed activity. As Mary at Jesus' feet was preferred to Martha and her much serving, so must sacred reverence take the first place and energetic service. I like that, energetic service, follow in due course. Or as we like to say, our service to God must stem or come out of the overflow of our love for God. Does that make sense? So our service to God comes from the overflow of our love for God. That's what he's saying, the, the adoration uh, before the active energy, the, the, the service for God out of uh, the service to God out of the love for God, okay? It overflows. There's a priority of service, in other words. And in verse 3, one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Guys, I want you to notice that the seraphim are not directly addressing God. Did you catch that? They're declaring and testifying of his nature and the wonder of his character to one another in his presence. They're declaring one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, why the mention of the word holy three times? I mean, isn't it enough to say that God is holy? Frankly, no, it is not. Now, it is possible, and some of you may be thinking in your mind, well, this is obviously an illusion, a reference, an implication, an inference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So that the triunity of Godhead perhaps coming into focus for us, holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit. And that's very plausible, also, there is the fact that in Hebrew, emphasis and intensity are communicated through repetition. Okay? In other words, there's not italics, there's not underlining, there's not highlighting. The, the way they're going to communicate the intensity and the emphasis, you see, is through repetition. So to say that God is holy is to say something. To say that God is holy, holy is to say far more. But to say that God, to say holy, holy, holy is to declare that God is holy to the highest possible degree. Are you following me? He is completely, absolutely, utterly, and categorically holy. Now ladies and gentlemen, Holiness isn't just an aspect of his nature. Like, well, he's he's loving, he's holy, he's wise, you know. It's not just one slice of the aspect of his nature. It is the very essence of his being. You understand what I'm saying? Holy is who he is. Now, what does that mean? Um, Holiness at its root carries the idea, many of you know this, simply carries the idea of being set apart. Uh, In other words, uh, we don't have a microphone up here, but you know, if there was a microphone here and it was used exclusively for worship, it was set apart for the purpose to be used of worship, I mean, you're not doing announcements in it. Uh, you're not uh, emceeing an event with it. Uh, you're not miking an instrument by it. You can't even teach a Bible study in it. It's used exclusively for worship. You could say there would be a sense in which that microphone was holy. It was set apart exclusively for one purpose. To call a man a holy man means that you know you would be implying that his life is set apart. Exclusively for the will for the service of God okay so to say that God is holy to the highest possible degree is to declare that he is absolutely and in totality separate family not only from sin but from every order of creation are you following me um in other words, if all of creation were to dissolve, the Lord God would remain. Um, God is not a super man. Uh, he is not just smarter than any man or stronger than any man or wiser than any man. He's not man at all. He is divine. He is holy. He is set apart. Now, we should... Take note of the fact that humanity is compatible with divinity, right? Uh, I mean, that's how uh, Jesus was able to robe himself or clothe himself in flesh and blood, in humanity. But even unfallen, guys, even unfallen, humanity is not on the same scale as divinity. God is set apart from all creation. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is wonderful news. Guys, uh, uh, again... Not only does it mean that he's separate from sin, that he will not tolerate sin, uh, that he's going to absolutely obliterate, annihilate sin, one day remove sin from all of his creation. By the way, that presents a problem for you and me because we're sinners, right? Enter the gospel, praise God. This is where the gospel, this is where the good news comes into focus for us. God can save you from your sin, uh, but you have to come his way. And it's exclusively through Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one door. Guys, this is very exclusive. In other words, there's no other way, but it's totally inclusive in that it's open to everyone. Okay? Okay? But because God is intrinsically holy, that means His power is a holy power, meaning of an infinitely great, an order that is infinitely greater than ours. There's nothing He can't do, and this is what the Bible says. Right? Is there anything too hard for me? Says the Lord. Is there anything impossible for me? God is of a of of an order infinitely greater in power, set apart than anything we could ever fathom, imagine, or even think. Uh, he doesn't simply have more love than you and I do. His love is of an infinitely greater order. That should joy your heart. God loves you in a capacity, quite frankly, unfathomable by you and me. It's all together. His forgiveness is on a different level. His comfort, his compassion, his wisdom, every nuance of his nature is holy and set apart in a different, infinitely greater way than his creation. And the whole earth filled with his glory. Now, notice I said the whole earth filled with his glory. Because the word is... Is not there in Hebrew. It just says the whole earth filled with his glory. So it could be in present tense. In other words, the word is was added by your translator to help give you context. And it could be present tense. That could be exactly what they're saying. Or they could be saying, future tense, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Speaking of the fullness of what God will do in the establishing of his kingdom upon the earth. The whole earth is to be filled with your glory. But I want you to notice, guys, and this is kind of a cool little uh, observation, that these angels were literally rocking the house with their shouts of acclamation, adoration, and praise. We read that the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him Not God, but the angels who cried out. Now, guys, I'm just going to take this wild presumption and say that heaven's handiwork is up to code. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? This is some powerful praise. My question is, what's our excuse? You understand what I'm saying? I want you to think about that. Last I knew, here's another way for me to put it. Does an angel have a greater reason to worship God than you do? Guys, last I knew, no angels have ever experienced the redeeming work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Would to God that you and me, that we would receive clarity in whom we worship and blow the roof off this place every time we gather. How can we not Worship and praise God with all that we are. Think about that. It comes from clarity, ladies and gentlemen. When you see him for who he is, I'm just telling you, it'll revolutionize your worship. Look at verse five. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What's happening? Clarity brought conviction, and conviction brought confession. Woe is me for I am undone. And I just want to tell you guys, this is always the result of coming into the presence of God. When you see God for who he is, I'm telling you, your heart will heave with sorrow. You will be undone. When confronted with the holiness of God, I'm just encouraging you, study the word. It's not our humanity that we're struck with. Wow, I'm so frail, I'm just a human. When confronted with the holiness of God, it's, it's not even our mortality that staggers us. You know, I mean, I'm such, I'm just a, a, a drop in an endless sea of eternity. It's, it's none of those things, you see. It's our sin. It's our impurity that's so staggering in the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am undone. Why? For I am unclean. You know, uh, all these experiences that you hear about or read about or that people testify of where maybe a near-death experience or something, they see heaven, they see the Lord, and they come back all peachy, you know? Man, I don't know. Um... I'm just going to say that is not typical of a scriptural experience. When Job saw the Lord, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Think about that. When Daniel had a vision of the Lord, he said, my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. We read that he fell with his face to the ground. He couldn't even move. When Peter realized who Jesus was, we read, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is what happens when you encounter holiness when John had a vision of the Lord in Revelation chapter 1 we read and when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead guys there's just something about the awareness of who God truly is that will bring a man low in the awareness of who he truly is a man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, of course, unclean lips testify of what? An unclean heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah was struck with how he handled himself, the way he conveyed and communicated, and, and how he was just, it wasn't right. Now, guys, that's not to say that Isaiah wasn't a godly man prior to this experience I'm not saying that at all I'm simply saying that the more clearly we see who God is the more clearly we see who we are um, it even and it doesn't have to be instant it can even happen uh, how, how might we say gradually as we grow in our understanding of who God is you know, when Paul the Apostle, when, he be, when, when the Lord called him, you remember, and he hit his face, and Lord, who are you? and What would you have me to do? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute, and all of this. Well, later on, we read where Paul says, you know, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then a little later on, as he's continuing to grow, he writes again, and he says to the Corinthians, he says, look, uh, I, I am the least of all the saints, You're like, I'm the the least of all the saints. So he's gone from just, you know, look, I probably, I, I don't feel worthy to be an apostle to I'm even less than the least of the saints. And then at the end of his life, you remember what he said? He said, man, I finally arrived. I finally got my act together. He didn't say that at all. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. The closer he grew to God, the more aware of the holiness of God, the more we might say like Job, now my eyes have seen you and I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He just realized who he was not. Now listen, being undone, unglued in the presence of God is not a bad place to be. It, it creates a profound humility, a brokenness which translates into Usability. Isaiah is crying out for God to cleanse him, to to make him acceptable in his sight. Now look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Remember, instantly, immediately, ready to be dispatched of God to serve him in any capacity. And he flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs. Now angels aren't wimps, man. He, if he needed a tong to grab this thing, it was hot. Okay? From the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. I okay, Man, you can like hear the sizzle, man. You know what I'm saying? This is crazy. And said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged clarity, led to conviction, led to confession, led to cleansing. When you cry out, when you confess, I got good news for you. God will cleanse. What does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the seraphim takes a pair of tongs, grabs a live coal from the altar, flies to Isaiah and presses it to his lips. Listen, guys, this is important. Don't miss this. The throne, remember we saw the throne. The throne is for God. The altar is for you and for me. It's where sin is dealt with, taken away, and purged. No doubt this points us to the altar of the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus bore the heat, the full fire of the wrath of God against sin that we might be purged in Him. When our sin was placed upon Him, God poured the full fury of his wrath, uh, the fire of his judgment out, and our sin was consumed. Praise God. But Jesus, not being a sinner, was not consumed, but he conquered death. Right? Now, we should also note that what happened Here, for and in Isaiah was purely of grace. You say, what do you mean? Well, God didn't say, uh, if you want to have clean lips, uh, if you want your iniquity taken away, if you really want your sin purged, you need to be baptized, or you need to be circumcised, or you need to uh, read so much, or pray for so long, or do this, or say that, or whatever. There was none of that. God did the whole thing. And the only thing for Isaiah to do was to receive it by faith. Something else we want to see is the fact that this guy's, I mean, I'd say it, I'm just making an obvious observation. I probably don't need to say it, but I'm going to say it. This was a spiritual transaction. Okay? In other words, it was an outward demonstration of the inward purification of the heart. Because I'm just telling you, if you have a sinful mouth, you can go and kiss all the red hot, hot charcoal you want. Um, it's not taking your sin away. Okay? This represented the purging of the sin from his heart. Now, look what happens. Having been purged of his sin, he's now ready to serve. Okay? Look, verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, underline it, here am I, send me. By the way, I should point out that Isaiah didn't passively say, Well, God, I'm here. I mean, if you want to, you can use me. There was none of that. He actively pursued the Lord to use him, to send him. Here am I. Here am I. It's the picture of the, the excited first grader, second grader, knows the answer. I, call on me. Call on me. You see. Here am I. Send me. Now, guys, you and me, we all know that God could have done the work himself. Or he could have dispatched any number of angels. But he prefers, listen, to use man to reach man. Are you following me? Um, A redeemed man can minister the message of redemption. Does that make sense? But here's the thing. He won't force you. If you're waiting around for God to force you, Uh, to serve him, to compel you in some kind of manner that would, you know, push you into... It's never going to happen. He's looking for someone. The word is willing. It's that free will we talked about last week. Do you see what he says? Whom shall I send who will go for us? Is there there anyone who's willing? Do I have any volunteers? And yes, you're seeing another reference of the plurality of the singularity of God. Whom shall I send who will go for us? But the point is that God is looking for people who want to be used by him. Isaiah had seen the Lord for who he was. There was clarity in his vision of God. He had uh, been uh, cleansed by the Lord. And now, and we might add again, without hesitation, he wanted to minister to others on behalf of the Lord. And that's always the appropriate order, and I might add, always the appropriate response. I see the Lord for who he is. I cry out to the Lord. The Lord cleanses me and now I want to serve him, you see. Who are you, Lord, and what would you have me to do? Verse nine. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not understand. Perceive, guys, follow the flow. Clarity, leading to conviction, leading to what? Confession, leading to cleansing, leading to the calling, okay? Leading to the commission. Go. When you have been cleansed by God, when you avail yourself then, to God, God will use your life. He will send you. He always has a go for you now uh, it, whether it 's go across the world or go across the street or go across the office, you know whatever the case may be, God wants to use you. To give his message of hope and healing, to share his word, his ways with others. Now, we have to say that the way that God would use Isaiah, it was going to be tough. It was going to be real tough. Um, But God was honest, wasn't he? And I love that about the Lord. It's like when he called Paul, you know, he, he, when God called Paul, Saul, who became Paul, do you remember what the Lord said? He said, I will show him how many things he must. And like, this is, this is non-optional. How many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He didn't say, hey, Paul, Man, you should serve me. I'm just telling you, it's going to be great. I mean, you're going to be first-class travel. You're going to have the best rooms to stay in, limousines to ride in, you know. I mean, uh, great hotel. The best of the best for my servants, Paul. That's how I roll. No? Paul was shown that he would suffer tremendously, but he answered the call anyway, you see. God tells Isaiah, guys, I'm going to put this quite frankly. God tells Isaiah, you are going to preach these people to hell. That's what he tells them. Think about that. In other words, they're not going to repent, Isaiah, but you're going to make them accountable anyway. You're going to give them the word. You're going to give them the message. They're not going to respond. They're not going to repent. They'll hear and not understand. They'll see, but not perceive. Guys, listen to me. God's Word can change lives, save souls, heal hearts, but it can also condemn, it can confirm destruction, it can bring judgment. Paul said that like this He said for we are to God The fragrance of Christ Among those who are being saved And among those who are perishing What does that mean To one we are the aroma of death Leading to death And to the other the aroma of life Leading to life You've heard the phrase The same sun that softens the wax Hardens the clay Depends on the material it's working with Whether it's soft and pliable Or hard and resistant you see If your heart is soft, if your mind is open, you will see, you will hear, you will understand with the heart and be healed, he says. In other words, you will be saved. If you're closed off to God, you're not really interested in the truth. The same message won't bring you salvation. It'll confirm you in your condemnation. Does that make sense? Like Pharaoh. Guys, a person can cross the line so that not wanting to repent, God will confirm you or strengthen you in that position and you will not, in fact, cannot repent. Now, I don't know where that line is for each person. But that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you will hear your voice, what does it say? If you will hear his voice, do not Harden your heart. There's implicit, there's inherent danger in hardening your heart against the message of the gospel. These verses, verses 9 and 10, are quoted six times in the New Testament. Now, God desires that all men everywhere be saved. It's not his will, it's not his wish that any would perish But what we're reading here is that God took those who wouldn't see and confirmed them so they couldn't see. Does that make sense? God won't blind you to the... Let me put it this way. God won't blind you to the truth against your will. But if you don't want to see it, He won't save you against your will either. How does that resonate? Okay? And when a person or a people... Cross the line they've rejected the opportunity to turn and be saved ladies and gentlemen what's left but judgment that's all that's left now we're going to read these last few verses and work toward a close, Karen are you my closer today just whenever you're ready look at verse 11 and then I said Lord how long I mean that's a That's a legitimate question. I mean, I got to preach these people, you know, a message that's going to bring them condemnation. How, How long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Isaiah asks the logical question, how long will I preach to those who won't hear, who won't see, who will reject your word? In other words, Lord, what represents, here's our final C word, what represents completion? And essentially, God says, destruction. You will preach. You will fulfill your calling. You will complete your calling when destruction comes. Till there's no one left. Wow. Now, God always has a remnant. One-tenth, he says here in this case. Guys, I want you to think about this. What God is telling Isaiah, essentially, is that nine out of every ten people will reject the message. Wow. That's heavy. I wonder what you'll do with the message, right? Guys, don't miss it. When Isaiah's encounter with God was concluded, He was no longer a mourner, right? Woe is me. He was a missionary. He wasn't on the sidelines, he was in the game. He had seen the Lord clearly. It brought conviction, confession, cleansing. He heard the calling. And despite the difficulty, he would fulfill his commission, he would complete his commission. What an example for you and for me. And may God use our lives for his glory. And may each of us say, here am I, send me. Let's bow our hearts. God, what a powerful passage you've brought us to and you've brought us through. And God, I just pray that its impact will bring forth fruit that remains for your glory. God, it's only appropriate that those who serve you would be on fire for you. And so we're asking, God, that you would ignite the passion of our praise, of our worship, that we see you clearly and that we would desire you're cleansing continually. And I just pray, God, that each heart here would lay hold faithfully of that for which you have laid hold of them. That we would say, here am I, God. Send me. That we would want to know you. Who are you, Lord? and that we would want to serve you, what would you have me to do? And I feel as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I would be remiss if I didn't avail the opportunity to you to simply humble yourself in the sight of God, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps God is seeking to lay hold of you even now. And if God is dealing with you, I'm just going to encourage you once again, don't harden your heart. God can forgive you of all your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For He is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Oh, we might say that all roads lead to God in that everyone will stand before God there's only one road that leads to salvation. And it's narrow and it's difficult and there are few who find it. But it's there for you if you'll take it. So if the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart and today is a day of salvation for you, I'm gonna encourage you, I'd love to pray for you. And so I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand where you're at. And if I see your hand, I'll acknowledge it and you can put it back down. But I just wanna give you a second... To say, you know what, today is a day of salvation for me. And I want to pray for you. And I don't care how old or how young you are, where you've been, what you've done, who's, you know, whatever. This is between you and the Lord. And I'm just encouraging you, don't let your moment pass you by. Okay, so this is your moment. Is there anybody that's just, you're feeling that, you're sensing that, the Lord's tugging on you in that capacity specifically. Father, I just thank you for your grace. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to know you. Lord, that you've put us in a place where none of us can ever stand before you and say, I didn't know, I never heard, I never had the chance. But God, you've made us all accountable. And now, Lord, having received your cleansing, I pray that we all respond to your calling. However you want to use this, us, God, have your way. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen.